You're listening to Thinking Within the Church with Andrew Ray Williams. Thanks so much for joining us on Season 2, Episode 2 of Thinking Within the Church. If you listen to last week's episode, you'll know that we talked with Dr. Joel Lawrence. Joel is the Executive Director of the Center for Pastor Theologians. He got his Ph.D. from the University of Cambridge and did his uh, Ph.D. thesis on Diedrich Bonhoeffer. And so he's helping us walk through and really understand and apply the truths embedded within one of Diedrich Bonhoeffer's most important texts, which is Life Together. Today we get to talk about reading the Psalms, praying the Psalms, how to read those and pray those rightly, uh, what it means to actually be the community of God that worships together. Uh, We talk about quote-unquote, sacred and secular time, and um, how Diedrich Bonhoeffer shows us a better way, and all sorts of other things that's very pertinent to thinking within the church. So thanks so much for listening to episode two, and let's go ahead and jump right in to our second conversation with Dr. Joel Lawrence. Well, Joel, welcome to episode two. Thanks so much for being here. Yeah, absolutely. Happy to be back. Awesome. Well, let's just go ahead and dive right back into uh, talking about Bonhoeffer and uh, specifically his text, Life Together. And last episode, you gave us kind of a, a an overview of who Bonhoeffer was, um, the, the unique time in which he lived that formed some of his writings. Um, and this one in particular, which was super helpful. We talked about chapter one, what it meant to be... Um, in community, and this chapter, chapter two, in this small little book, um, is about a day together. So, can you talk to us a little bit about help frame this for us? What is what's this chapter about? Yeah, so I think at it, at the kind of highest level, the the really interesting thing that Bonhoeffer is doing here is he's he's really engaging in a theological meditation on on time. Right from the perspective of evening and morning, and then the day as it unfolds, not just looking at it from the perspective of kind of what we could call quote unquote secular time. And by secular, there I don't mean the way that that word is often used in our current context of the secular world versus the religious world. I I just mean time when it is not in its perspective of the divine or time when it is not seen from a theological perspective. And then it's just kind of a, a sequence of events that, that relate to each other or don't relate to each other, you know, kind of history can be seen just as a flow of events. But I think what Bonhoeffer really is encouraging us to do here is reclaim a theological vision of time, that time is a creation of God. Time therefore embeds us in rhythms of God's creation. And so what he's wanting to do is, is recapture some of that vision for, again, we're in the context of he's training seminarians for ministry and, and further in the context, as we talked about in the last episode, in the mid-1930s, in the time of the rise of the Nazis, he's wanting to take these seminarians to a, a different perspective on what the day is. And so he begins in this chapter, the chapter two is the day together. Then chapter three will be the day 
alone, which in and of itself, I think, is an interesting ordering. Perhaps we might think as an individualistically framed culture that you start with the day alone and then move into the day together. But he does it the opposite of that. And so the first few, the first page or two or three, I guess, are he's really reflecting on mourning as the time of the church. Right. So he has this kind of communal vision of morning time. That's a time when we gather. That's a time when we worship the Lord. So what we can dig into some of that as we move forward. But I think, again, just kind of at a, at a big picture framing, he's doing this theological vision of, of time, which then means we have to think theologically from God's perspective about our day and how we spend our day, how we organize our day. So that's what he's doing here for the church. So that's the first thing. The second thing just to say is um, I've assigned this book for courses that I teach on Bonhoeffer, and, and uh, this is often the, the most difficult chapter for people to read, not because of the content, but in some ways because of the tone. Um, what, what, you, what comes across here, I think, is really kind of Bonhoeffer's Lutheran Germanness and a desire for order, right? So there's a lot here about order. And uh, one of the ways that can come across is as a fairly heavy handedness in some of his prescriptions. And, and one thing in particular that my students always comment on is when he's talking about singing together in the life of the church he talks about doing that in unison, right? Not doing a lot of harmonizing and different groups doing different things or even having solos singing. And I think what's important to recognize in that is while we may not agree, and I, I don't agree with all of his prescriptions in, in, in that in particular and in other ways as well, there is an important why behind what he is doing here. And that why is he is driving the church to understand who they are as the one community of Christ. And so this oneness, this unity that he's going to push for plays itself out in different ways. Um, and so just one of the things I encourage people if they're reading life together is as you get to chapter two, uh, just recognize that you, you may feel some of that heavy handedness. You may feel a bit like he's prescribing things that that. Uh, maybe in our context, don't make a ton of sense. Uh, don't allow those things to distract you from what's what's underneath of them. And what's underneath of them is this call for the church to be one in Christ and to recognize our oneness in Christ. And so what really he's doing is saying, these are the the physical, if you will, expressions of that oneness. These are the practices of our oneness in our day together as the church. So just that's, wanted that's to, really to say that. Yeah. 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 Go that's, ahead. that's really good. And um, I think it sets us up for um, a lot of the things that, that uh, we want to talk about, you know, just a response to the first thing you said regarding his kind of theologizing around time, thinking through what it means to think theologically about time. You know, I think that's, it's really helpful because I think typically, um, most of us think about time, uh, we kind of compartmentalize time, right? Into, as kind of you alluded to, sacred and secular time. Yeah. Like we have time for work, we have time to go and 
you know, be with our family or go to the grocery store or, but then we have time with God. We do our devotions, right? If we're, if we're pious or if we, we go to church. Um, But one thing that I think is, is really great that we can talk more about um, is that Bonhoeffer really does see um, all time as, as sacred in a sense. And they're, they're, yeah. these binaries don't really work because God is the creator of time. He entered into time and redeemed time. And um, so there's all sorts of amazing ways of just even our everyday lives, seeing our lives differently with God. Yeah, I, yeah, I think that's right. And I, I think uh, another way that we signal that we we do something different than what Bonhoeffer is doing in our kind of 21st century American context is we talk about our different lives, like my work life my family life, my, my home life, my church life, right? We, we slice our lives up into these different segments of our lives. And we see them in some sense as connected, but, but really as kind of discrete entities from one another. And I, I think that if you reflect on what Bonhoeffer is doing here with time, that also has to impact the way that we see our life in time, our life in the created order of God. And it, it brings more unity to our vision of God, our vision of our lives, our vision of our relation to the creation that, you know, from Bonhoeffer's perspective, and he's certainly not the only theologian who has talked about this. This is consistent through the life of the church that the the creation itself is ordered in a particular way. And we are set into that order in a particular way that that is to bring oneness to our lives and to see our lives in the context of of the divine life right which is what what would would unify our own sense of identity as well as our life with with others so as he's reflecting on this day together uh, that context i think is really important and again is something that for our life in early 21st century America, I think offers some particular challenges to the way we think about time and the way our lives exists in time. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, yeah, let's, let's go ahead and dive right in with those kind of overarching sense of, um, of what we're getting into, but yeah, lead us Joel. Yeah. So um, the, the, probably half the chapter is really kind of on what he views as the primary start of the day, which is a worship service together. Now, again, we're in the context here of he is dwelling literally in community with others, right? They're living in the same house. Um, so in a sense, the the way that we structure our lives uh, are, are going to be a little bit different than what he is, how he is structured. But he recognizes that even in the in the text, he says that the the gathering together in the morning will look different in different contexts at the base. The basic unit of it would be a, a family, right? There's a family gathering. So he's not saying you got to get up, you got to go to church every morning. But he is suggesting that the life of the church in whatever different uh, form that is playing out, if it's the gathering of the church on a Sunday or a family gathering through the week, that the the way to acknowledge this, this creational reality of God's time is to begin the day in worship. And that's why we begin together for him 
because that's the primary expression of worship. Again, we might think of it more as, well, I get up, I do my devotions as an individual, I read my Bible, and then I go out into community, into work, or maybe I meet with my family at, after I've done that. But but he's wanting to to encourage us to, to see the first act is a communal act. And he has a line in there that I, I'll just note. He says, the early morning belongs to the church of the risen Christ. Right. It's it belongs to the church, not just the individual who belongs to Christ. It, it belongs to the church. That's where we as the community of Christ come together to experience his presence. And that theme of the presence of Christ is is really important going through the, the whole book of life together. We talked about that a bit, I think, in the first episode. But he is really stressing that what matters is that we're meeting with Christ. And that meeting with Christ takes place, yes, individually, and he'll talk about that in the next chapter. But the way we begin that recognition that Christ is with us is through this communal gathering. Now, so he's um, encouraging. Why, why, why yeah, do you think that is so important, Joel? Is, you know, because, you know, we're probably many of our listeners are people like us who grow up with an evangelicalism and with a, yeah. a strong sense of, you know, individual Bible reading, um, which of course is great. I mean, it's something that yeah. I enjoy, something that I know many, it's very fruitful, but what is it that Bonhoeffer sees why is it so significant for him that we start out the day in a communal act of worship rather than an individual act of worship? I think it is about, it's all about identity. Like that, what he wants to stress is our primary identity as, as members of the body of Christ, not our own individual identity. Yes, I'm an individual. Yes, you're an individual, but our fundamental identity is participants in the body of Christ. So when we think about who we are, yes, we think about ourselves. I'm Joel Lawrence. I have a particular story. That's a particular identity. But the way that we frame it is we start with the individual and then figure out then how, how do individuals kind of form communities but the individual is is prior to the community in the kind of Western individualistic American way of thinking about this. For Bonhoeffer, theologically, it's the opposite. The body of Christ, really Christ himself is primary. The body of Christ, which is the presence of Christ, is primary. And then I find my own self, I find my my identity in relation to Christ. And therefore inevitably in relation to his church. So I think and he he doesn't he doesn't dive in, he doesn't talk a lot about like, you know, individual versus communal and identity. But I think theologically that that is what's going on here. That's why he does start with the day together rather than the day of loan, because there's a theological priority. That's here. helpful. Jesus is our identity. The body of Christ is the place where we find that identity. Therefore, we can only be ourselves insofar as we understand ourselves in relation to 
the body of Christ. So where do you start your day? You start your day in that community, which is the proper centering of your of your identity, of your place in the world. And then out of that, you go to the day alone. Um, and as we'll talk about, you go into the work that you have to do, but all of that needs to be framed by this theological reality of the community of Christ. That's great. That's great. Yeah. So um, he he hits on that and then he, he gets into kind of what the structure of a worship service ought to be. And for him, it's, it's three components. It's the word, it's prayer, particularly praying the Psalms, and it's singing. So he he begins around thinking about uh, praying the Psalms, reflecting on the nature of the Psalms and the way that we are called to to read the Psalms. Um, and he actually has another little book called the the Psalms, the prayer book of the Bible, where he where he goes deeper into this. But he's posing the question of prayer and particularly thinking about the Psalms as the prayer book of the church, right? The Psalms was the prayer book of Israel. And, and then it, as the church came uh, into faith in Jesus Christ, the church came into, into being, uh, we also have brought, of course, the Hebrew scriptures with us and the Psalms continue to function in that way. And he talks a bit about the offense of the Psalms and the challenge of reading the Psalms, like the imprecatory Psalms where we're, we're calling divine wrath down upon our enemies. And how do we, should we pray that when Jesus told us to, to love our enemies? How do we pray the Psalms? How do we pray that, you know, we're in a different context than David was. How do we, how do we understand this to be our prayer book? And the way that he centers that is to recognize that it's actually not we who are the primary prayers, it's Jesus who is the primary prayer. And again, this, this takes us to this question of the presence of Christ, that what we're doing when we're gathering together, it's not just we're coming together as, as discrete individuals, we're coming together as the body of Christ. And Christ is the center of that body. Christ is the meaning of that body. So what we're coming together to do is actually to hear Christ pray and to join in his prayers, right? So Christ is our intercessor. Christ is, is before the throne of his father praying on our behalf by the Holy Spirit in, in the power of the Spirit. So we're entering into this prayer life of the Trinity, which is prior to us. And, and which must shape the way that we understand what's happening when we are praying together as the church. So what he wants to encourage us to do is to reflect on when we pray, it's actually not us who is the primary prayer that Christ by the spirit is already praying with us. What we do when we pray is we join in to what Christ and the spirit are doing. And the text of scripture, particularly the Psalter gives us entry into that prayer life of Christ. So in this sense, he wants us to, to realize that prayers aren't initiated by us. Praying is not something that we start and then 
try to get God's attention by, by praying or engage with God through our initiative. Rather, we're just stepping into the triune life that is from eternity past to eternity future. And we take our place within that praying life by joining in the prayers. And the Psalms gives us that script. The Psalms gives us that, that, uh, that, that form to our prayer. And so the imprecatory Psalms, the enemies, the, the praying about our, you know, saying some of the Psalms do, uh, talking about our own purity and these things that maybe don't really reflect the truth about us. He's saying they do reflect Jesus and you're entering into that. And so that's how you, you pray the Psalms. Yeah, that's this to me. I don't want to I don't want to take up too much time on this because there's lots of other good stuff here. But this is we talked about last episode how the this little book is actually a big book. There's so yeah. much in here. And it's because he'll make these statements and make these moves that there's a treasure underlying this because he's presupposing yeah. so much. And so I don't want to take too much time on this, but I think it's worth talking about because I think specifically with the Psalms, you know. As a pastor, as pastors, we have no doubt tried to help encourage people to engage with the scriptures. And oftentimes something that comes up is, well, how do I read the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures? And, um, you know, that's a much bigger conversation that we don't want to get into the weeds on here. But I think we find something here that is very consistent with the whole of Bonhoeffer's theology, which is it's Christological, or another way of saying yeah. it's Christocentric. And so, yeah. so is the entire scriptures, even the Old Testament. And so we naturally are going to read the the Old Testament or the Psalms specifically more like the apostles did in the New Testament than even, you know, a, a current Jew would today. There's a uniqueness yeah because of the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so specifically praying and singing the Psalms, um, can you talk a little bit more about, drill down at least, like when we do come upon, you know, there's these Psalms that says, Lord, look on me because I'm because I'm innocent, you know, because look, look on me because of my, my, uh, because of how innocent I am. And then, you know, in light of the fact that we're, well, I actually don't know if that's true about me or, right. or if we're, we're trying to, Again, we're almost offended by I can't remember which psalm it is, but it's um it's the it's the one where basically um there's a prayer to 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 dash the infants against the rocks. I mean, let's just take yeah. it to the most extreme. Yes. How is Bonhoeffer exhorting us to read these faithfully, not only in light of Jesus, but with Jesus Christ, who is the presence of the church? Yeah. How do we begin to do this? So I, I think the the first thing is uh, just to recognize I'm not the primary referent of these psalms. So when the psalm says I, it's not actually referring to me first, right? It it is the prayer of Jesus, right? This is the claim that Bonhoeffer is making that because Christ is the Word of God, and again, as you signaled, this would get us into a very long conversation about the relationship between the Old Testament and the New and how to interpret. So I'm just going to set all that aside. And uh, uh, there might be people who have 
qualms with the way that Bonhoeffer is interpreting this, but I think he actually is pretty consistent with much of the history of the church, which is to read the Old Testament Christologically. And therefore, if we're doing that, then when the psalmist cries out, uh, you know, God spare me because I'm innocent, we can't just take that and put those words directly into our mouths without recognizing the Christos the Christological nature of that, that this is first about Christ and it's what it's about Christ praying. Then because now we are no longer ourselves, we now belong to Christ. Now we can pray these prayers knowing that I'm not innocent, but Christ was, and now my identity is in him. So I have the innocence of Christ. I think we have to be very careful about how we do this because we can use it to kind of use the Psalms to manipulate and and make claims for ourselves. Like, let's just put it into a a, a real life context of, you know, maybe I'm in a there, there's someone at my work and we're in a bad relationship and I'm praying the Psalms. And I'm praying that God would smite this person in my workplace so that I can be found right. Well, you may not be right in all of the debates that you have with that person <laughs> at work. So let's be careful not to, to, to take things from the Psalms and apply them to ourselves, but rather let's see ourselves stepping into the place of Jesus and pray these Psalms as those who belong to him, as those whose, whose lives are found in Christ, that then puts a little bit of distance between the Psalms and my own particular context. It doesn't divorce prayer from my own life and my own context, but it takes it out of a selfishness of prayer. And Bonhoeffer talks about the, this danger of the selfishness of praying. He also, he, he, this runs through too of selfishness of praying, the selfishness of reading scripture and the selfishness of singing, kind of going back to that. If we're just wanting to, we're really good singers and we want to draw attention to ourselves. And that's why we do the harmonies and the solos. Those are the kind of things he's pushing at. It's this priority of Jesus. So he's wanting us to say your prayer life isn't primarily about you. You're stepping into Jesus's prayer life. And as you start to live in Jesus's prayer life and see it this way, then that inevitably is going to shape how you pray about you and how you pray about your own situation. So he's wanting to reverse this order of praying is about me bringing my needs to Jesus, that they might be met on my terms, turning that around to, no, you're just stepping into what Jesus is already doing. And that inevitably is going to confront how you pray for yourself. Because it's going to confront your selfishness. Yeah. And, and prayer, as we know, can be a, a mechanism of our own selfishness. Right? Yes. It can be a mechanism of our own self-interest. So I think that that theological context of praying in Christ is a way that he's, again, encouraging us towards this unity of the church because it it puts my own particular drives or my own particular needs, requests secondary. They're still there, but they don't have the initiating driving force that sometimes I think our prayer life often does when we think prayer is about me 
initiating with God, then inevitably what's going to drive that is me. Yeah, exactly. So Bonhoeffer wants Jesus to be driving the way that we think about prayer. Yeah, I think that's really helpful. And as you said, he's incredibly consistent because he talks about Christ as the mediator yeah. all the time. Yeah. And this yeah. is, he's just, he's even the mediator in our prayer. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I think about, you know, praying the Our Father, praying the Lord's Prayer. You know, the reason we're able to say Our Father is because we're actually entering into the prayers of Jesus. That's right. He's teaching us That's to pray right. not only as he is, yeah. but in and through him. Yeah. And um, yeah, I think that's that's really helpful. And I guess just one more thing on the Psalms, just from my perspective, is that, you know, I think that, you know, you mentioned, again, this is such a larger conversation. I don't want to get us in this too far. But when it comes to to reading scripture and reading yeah. it faithfully, you know, I think I think Bonhoeffer is, um, and if you read other works, he's very steeped in, you know, German um, historical critical ways of reading scripture but he seems to have this implicit sense that that some of the ancient christians did that there's different senses of scripture and there's different ways of reading scripture that are faithful and this christological this this christ-centered way of reading scripture in the context of the church is actually entirely not only appropriate but actually um most fruitful in terms of the church's worship yeah, I, th- I think that's absolutely right. Um, and, and you can see that, you know, kind of lurking in this in this chapter of the way he's thinking about the Psalms. It's not a modern historical critical approach to the Psalms. The way he's talking about reading scripture, again, there's a decentering here that's going on, right? He, so he talks about as we you know, move from the the reading of this or, or the the praying of the Psalms to the reading of the scripture in the context of community. He talks about reading longer chunks of scripture together. He t- his his prescription would be read a chapter of the Old Testament and at least half a chapter of the New Testament every day as part of your gathering. And the the reason for that is, you know, he says, well, some people might complain that that's too much. We can't take it all in. And he says, yeah, that's right. You can't take it all in. And that's part of the training of recognizing you're dealing with a transcendent God who doesn't come to us in little snippets of advice, right? He doesn't, he doesn't come to us in just kind of worldly wisdom that you can put on a bumper sticker that that actually becomes very dangerous. And some of the ways I think he's, he's countering devotional reading here is he is concerned about this kind of, I'm going to pick up the Bible, read a couple sentences Think about how it fits my life, how it can give me a little spiritual juice for the day. And then I'm going to go out into my day for him, the lingering and the understanding that what we are getting isn't able to be just kind of downloaded into these little bits that we can use for our own lives is part of that decentering work where it's not that the Bible speaks to my life. It's that my life is being called into the fullness of God's work in the world. And that's overwhelming to me, right? That, I, that, that doesn't fit in the way that we often want the Bible to fit, which is we're going to pick it up. We're going to read it. We're going to get a, a little jolt that's going to help us through the day. He frames that much differently of the church coming under the living word of God together 
that and that let that frame the way that we see our lives right and then from that you go into the day and and he talks about the the work day that going out into our work is good and right and it connects us to the world but it must be framed by our understanding of our place under the word of god so uh, again it it's this i think real challenge that we have and it's a very modern postmodern challenge which centers the individual and then the bible is seen and valued in so far as it helps me as an individual to navigate my my life and for him that is a uh I, I would I would say a sinful way of understanding the Bible because it keeps us at the center. If we see ourselves coming into the community of Christ to sit together under the word, we no longer are the priority. Even in our thinking about the Bible, we're no longer the priority. And I don't think we do this intentionally. I don't think we do this out of a nefarious place, but it's kind of the way that the human heart uh, in its fallenness can try to twist everything to be about me that he's wanting to build practices into the life of the church in the way of reading scripture that, that pushes against that. And then that gives trajectory to the way we understand our lives as we leave the community and go out into our work. It's being centered in the word of God. And then the day ends with another gathering of the church with the Psalm, with the hymn, with the reading of the scripture so that our whole lives are being enmeshed in this larger vision of who, of who God is and what God is doing in and through himself that calls us to participate, but not to initiate. Yeah, that's really, really helpful. And I think, you know, it, it gives meaning to our lives in ways that we often don't think that has meaning. You know, I think of, you know, at one point he talks about how, um, you know, when Paul says in Philippians to pray without ceasing, and he says that actually our work is part of that praying without ceasing. So it's yes. not as if we're supposed to just be, you know, praying under our breath the entire day, which is, of course, right. impossible. Um, but actually, because of this totalizing view of time which is redeemed and, and, and mediated through Christ, even our work can be prayerful. And, you know, I think about um, uh, Brother Lawrence, yeah. who talks about practicing the presence of God. And he says something, I mean, it's a total paraphrase, I may butcher it, but he says something along the lines of, you know, as for my ordinary set times of prayer, they're just an extension yeah. of my prayer all the time in the midst of my work. And so it's almost Bonhoeffer's kind of reaching, taking the the contemporary church and putting it back into a larger vision of what it means to live a prayerful life. Yeah. I think that's so helpful for every day for us. If we thinking, Oh, does my life have meaning? Does my life, uh, do I need to be doing spiritual disciplines and practices all the time? But yeah. How, how does that concretely begin to manifest in our lives, Joel? Well, again, it gets it gets back to this overarching theme of the presence of Christ, right? So when 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 Paul says pray without ceasing, he doesn't mean have your eyes closed, your head bowed, your hands folded, talking to God, 
24 hours a day, right? That is not a biblical vision of prayer. A biblical vision of prayer is recognizing that you're in the presence of God. Prayer is really more about relational communion than it is about us talking to God and asking God for things. The talking and the asking are a component of this larger thing. But when it's only the talking and the asking, then prayer gets super twisted. And again, it becomes centered on me. And it, and, and, and it actually becomes about myself rather than about being in fellowship with the living God. So I think this is what Brother Lawrence is a, a, a phenomenal example of going through the day, washing the dishes is an act of prayer. Serving his fellow brothers was an act of prayer. Being in the community, doing a worship service was an act of prayer. They all are different ways that we're living out a recognition that we dwell in the presence of Christ. So I, I think for, for folks, you know, in your church, in our churches, working, working a job, it, it goes back to this earlier thing where we kind of segment out our lives. And I, I have the time when I go to church, I have the time when I have my devotions, then I go to work. And that's not seen in the total frame of I'm in the presence of God. Yeah. And maybe we bring our Christianity into work in terms of we want to be moral, right? We want to to treat people well, and that's all really good. Ethics really matters, but that also needs to be in the frame of every meeting I have, I'm I'm in the presence of God. Every task I have to accomplish, I'm in the presence of God. And that can really start to reform the way that we view labor, the way that we view our occupation, the way that we view whatever it is that God has given us to do in the day. And Bonhoeffer talks about this of if the day begins in this communal worship and time of prayer, then the rest of the day is framed. And, and he even says decisions are going to be made, are going to be easier because we've been in the presence of God and we recognize that we're in the, the presence of God, right? Not in some magical, mystical way, but in the way of just being with God reframes what we do with the day. So again, it's this totalizing vision of time and putting ourselves in that context that, um, that I think is the, the driving heartbeat of this chapter and, for me, just reading it again in preparation for this, uh, most of my reflections were on how poorly I'm doing at all of this. <laughs> <laughs> but kind of a re uh, um, re motivation for me to be more attentive to the presence of Christ uh, in the day. Yeah, that's really good. That's really good. Yeah, I had the similar reaction, Joel. Um, I mean, it's, it's very challenging, but very good. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's a needed corrective, a needed voice. And, um, you know, I think that, you know, specifically with when it's this talk on prayer, something that I really gained was just how mechanistic my prayer life can be, where it's almost like a tool that I can use with God rather than this. It's more like an, a, a a mechanical frame rather than a relational frame. Right? Yes. And this yeah. is what he's calling us towards. Yes, and, absolutely. Um, it is, it's very easy when, you know, you look at like my Google calendar um, and there's all these little slots 
um, to even sometimes try to say, okay, where am I going to quote unquote fit God in? Right. You know, God is that calendar, right? Yeah. Um, And that's what he's calling us, calling us towards, which I think is really helpful. Um, Well, Joel, will you want to take us through like one more thing that you think is really significant? Yeah. I'll just do one last, one last quick thing. Uh, When he's talking about eating together, right. And he talks about meals together. Uh, this is where a bit of the heavy handedness lifts a bit because he talks there about the celebratory nature of eating together of, of meals together. Um, and I, I, I like this line. I'll just read it. He says, God will not tolerate, which is by itself a little heavy handed, but then he goes on. God will not tolerate the unfestive joyless manner in which we eat our bread with sighs of groaning, with pompous, self-important busyness, and even with shame. Uh, Through the daily meal, God is calling us to rejoice, to celebrate in the midst of our working day, right? So again, he he has a, they're having lunch together as his community, but as they're coming together, he is reminding them of the celebratory nature of our redemption and that food is a gift of grace that we are meant to enjoy and and to delight in. And that is a way that we are binded together in our festive life together with Christ. So I just wanted to make sure that we we point that out, that he wants us to, to celebrate, uh, to have our recognition of that our daily bread is a, a, an opportunity for, for festivity. So... Mm-hmm. I think yes. that's a, that's another good word for us. It is. Yes, that's exactly right. And I, I know that we'll talk later and and he'll talk more in a later chapter about the Lord's Supper um, yeah. and how that all relates. But um, but yeah, that's a That's a really good point. And I think yeah. it's a good note to end on. Um, I agree. Yes. I agree. Yeah. Well, Joel, this is super helpful, man. Um, really look forward to talking next next time about um, a day alone. But this you helping us through a day together has been really helpful. So thanks again, yeah. man. Really appreciate your time. My pleasure. Happy to do it. Thanks. Thanks. Thanks for listening to this episode of Thinking Within the Church. It really means a lot. If you also don't mind to rate and review the show, that really does help get the word out. You can review it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever podcast platform of your choice. Thanks again, and hope to catch you next episode.